This week, I'm joined once again by writer and independent researcher Maurizio Loza. In this episode, we discuss Ioan Culiano's book, Eros and Magic in the Renaissance, alongside discussions on the Reformation, occultism, Giordano Bruno, and more. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible, and if you would like to support Hermetics, or become part of the community, or gain access to some exclusive content, please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So, Maurizio Loza, thanks very much for joining us once again on Hermetics Podcast. Thank you for having me again. Uh, so this uh, sort of first of two parts, this episode, um, really these two parts are culminating in a discussion on a documentary or, I mean, to describe it as a documentary is a bit different, but it's uh, something you've been working on called Eros Unchained, which is a multi-part sort of series um, based loosely based around the theories of a book that we're talking about today called uh, Eros and Magic in the Renaissance by Ian P. Guglielmo, which has become this, um, I would say, this sort of cult classic in uh, magical literature, almost anthropology i mean there is a foreword by murkia eliad um and it, it really touches on a lot i mean it goes all the way from as you'd imagine eros and magic in the renaissance through to how magic affects advertising in the modern day um really culiano was one of the first to sort of outline this in writing i would say maybe maybe i'm wrong with that but this is the discussion that we're having today is around this book and then the second part will be on eros and change your own your own project um so I mean, perhaps before we begin, I mean, the first question I had for you is who is Juan Culiano? Uh, but perhaps I'd, I would, uh, you know, ask you, where was it you first came across Eros and Magic in the Renaissance? Okay, it was a couple of friends of mine who are librarians. They recommended the book. I was, well, back then, that must have been uh, 2013 or 2014, I remember. But uh, I was, I was um, doing a lot of research on the evolution of consciousness I was working, uh, you know, with the books of John Gebster, of Owen Barfield, and this friends of mine came to me and they said, you have to read this book. They just, they had found the book and they say, you have to read this. You really have to, to get into it. And uh, well, I did, I got a copy in Spanish and then I got a, an English copy and uh, it was a, it was a ride. I was astounded at the, uh, you know, the depth of the research Juliana did for that book. It is, it is incredibly thorough. Uh, the way he managed it, and well, that's where I found the uh, the idea of Renaissance erotic magic as the predecessor to uh, advertising and media. So I thought nobody else is is doing it. So why don't I write a book about that? So I started to you know basing myself on on, on Kulena's book, I I started research and wrote the other book, which ended up becoming a documentary and in a sense documentaries as you said loosely based on on eros uh, eros magic in the renaissance as well so yeah that's that's pretty much the story of how i came about the uh the book mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you know yeah i will ask you i mean who who was culiano because he's he himself has become this sort of uh cult-like figure in in occult yeah, and magical circles right yeah, totally. He is, well, uh, Umberto Eco used to say that he's kind of a myth. He has become sort of a myth. 
But, um, you know, there's, uh, there hasn't been much uh, written in English. There's a very good book by Ted Anton called uh, Arrows and the uh, Murder of Professor Kulani. I think it's the book, uh, the name of the book. But, um, well, anyway, just to make a brief profile of Kuyano, uh, he was a Romanian scholar and magician that specialized in the history of religion and the history of magic and Gnosticism. And he was also known for his political essays and short stories. He was born in 1950 in the city of Yassi in an intellectual family. And he grew up during the Ceausescu communist regime, which he fled in uh, 1972, I think, when he was granted political asylum in Italy while he was studying at the Università Cattolica of Milan. Uh, he was widely considered an authority in Gnosticism and uh, Renaissance magic, and he was a first-hand connoisseur of divination techniques uh, that he applied to his writings. And, um, <clears throat> well, he actually predicted in allegorical form the chain of events that led to the fall of the Ceausescu regime and its aftermath. That is a very interesting, I mean, there is a, there's a short story of his in which he predicts kind of what happened, which I think really riled up a lot of his enemies or the people that would end up killing him. So uh, he was among the first intellectuals uh, to denounce that the popular uprising in the city of Timisoara, which was where the uh, Romanian revolution started, uh, was co-opted by factions within the Securitate and the Communist Party uh, that had been planning to topple Ceausescu for a long time. And after that, after the topple, uh, he also became a vocal critic uh, of the new regime, which uh, earned him enemies in the Romanian intelligence service. So after an intimidation campaign that included threats and anonymous phone calls and letters, he was killed in a bathroom stall at the University of Chicago uh, with a single shot to the head, execution style. And to this day, he remains the only academic that I know to be assassinated in, in U.S. soil. Uh, and well, the sad thing is that since his death, uh, his theories on the nature of history and religion have been mostly forgotten by the academia and his crime remains unsolved. I mean, everything points, it was politically motivated, but nobody knows what parties were really involved there. And as you said, you know, his death um, has turned him into kind of a myth in, in magical circles. But the academia, on the other hand, they have just, uh, you know, let go of him entirely, I think. Why, why do you, why do you think that is? I mean, do you think that's just to do with fashion, or he's quite obscure mm. anyway? Or well, yes. Well, he was a, he was in a typical uh, academicist. I think he wasn't. You know, if you if you studied under him, he didn't have the rec the reputation that he would get you to the right places. But the people that that did study with him loved him. I mean, his 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 graduate students were like really fanatical about the way he taught because he was like this person with a hands-on approach to magic. So actually he he taught a, this divination course and he said, okay, I'll teach you this for this semester, but at the end you'll have to you'll have to uh you know make a prediction or come up with something practical. So so I think he was a very interesting person to be around, especially if you were a student, if you were young. But um, he didn't have the best reputation in terms of, of uh, you know, being a kind of a serious academic, mm -hmm. uh, probably because he was very hands-on and he, he actually lived this knowledge. He was a magician, not just, you know, an armchair intellectual. So, yeah, I think that it has to do with that. And the other thing is that his ideas were very eclectic. I mean, they, they came from... Um, he he didn't. I mean, he was a historian of religion, sure, but he was 
drawing ideas from physics, from uh, mythology, from all over. So it was really, really uh, complicated to follow his, you know, his lead in that in that sense. I think. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you, is that something you you uh, personally would support is to bring back bring back practical magic into the academy? Well, it's always interesting. I'm not a magician. Uh, yeah, I think we discussed this on the previous interview, but um, but yeah, I think. Well, I do believe that a that a more uh, practical approach to knowledge would uh, be advisable for almost any discipline. But you know, it's uh, we we have become abstract thinkers, and this is really this is a nuisance. I think we I almost believe that we have forgotten how to do this, how to to go into this hand and approach and not have this really heavy intellectual conversations, but go into, okay, how can we solve this? How can we do things? So yeah, I would advise it. I wouldn't know how to start it, certainly, but um, it shouldn't be that complicated. I mean, I, I think it's like getting to know the people that you need to know to do things and and start doing them, I guess. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And he also, he, he didn't write all that much in his lifetime though did he so we've got eras and magic in the renaissance there's a book the title of which something gilgamesh i remember yeah sorry oh yeah can you hear me yeah i can hear you okay yeah you froze for a minute yeah yeah um yeah so and the the other i think the other well-known book of his is something uh something gilgamesh uh well he actually wrote plenty of books most of them only only three or four of them are in english he mm-hmm. has another one called the tree of gnosis which is a history <clears throat> of uh, gnosticism very interesting he has another one i don't know the names in english actually i've read them in spanish uh but most of them are in french i believe he has about four or five books you know full length uh books but he wrote a lot of, es- uh, of essays, of academic mm-hmm. essays. He has a list, I don't know, it's probably 50 or more wow. of peer-reviewed. So it was plenty of material there. And he was also a political essayist. And he was also into short stories. He has like, uh, I think, some two or three short story collections. Uh, I don't know if they are in, in English. So they're certainly not in Spanish. And um, he, I think he also has a novel. I don't remember. Or well, maybe I'm confusing it with a with the short story collection. But he his his literary production was considerable. It was really, I mean, it was really prolific. I would say. Oh wow! Well, excuse excuse, excuse my ignorance then. No. I mean, I mean, it's probably a testament to the fact of uh, him uh, him not being all that well known. I guess, um, especially in English speaking. I'm, I'm probably being the uh, the arrogant the arrogant English english speaker so <laughs> mo- moving uh moving into the book i mean how would you i mean obviously from the title we've got eros and magic in the renaissance so that is one thing that he's clearly focusing on but how would you um describe this book because you know it'd been a long time since i'd read it and i was really i'd wanted to reread it for a long time and i was really looking forward to it and i had i had forgot as you said just how uh, sort of positively dense it is and just how much he covers in a very short space of time and also just how much he draws from and cites and references um you know one chapter of this uh not to be not to be too over the top but one chapter of this could be you know a month-long study in its own right i think yeah probably yes if you're not familiar with it it could take you it could take you that easily i think so there's a lot of knowledge condensed but i mean for a description of the book i would say that is a work 
about the history and uh, and the inner workings of Western of the Western magical tradition that lasted until the Renaissance and declined with the Reformation and the appearance of modern science. So <clears throat> I think the book presents a thorough compendium of the basic uh, concepts and the development of Western magic from antiquity to its highest point of development, which was in the Renaissance. And in my view, um, the book's greatest achievement is its definition of magic as a science or a discipline of the imagination, or in other words, as a system based on the manipulation of, of images and symbols, both inner and outer, uh, to attain certain results in the psyche and the world. And this type of magic, as we mentioned, uh, is considered erotic, uh, since its operational principles, arrows, or desire in, in a very broad sense of the term, which can be used to manipulate individuals and, and masses. Uh, on the other hand, another of its greatest contributions uh, to cultural history, I think it's his thesis that the magic arts of the Renaissance were the blueprint for the operations of advertising and public relations, and that it is there that we have to look to understand how we are being manipulated by the media. So yeah, I think those two things are the are the main you know the highlights I would I would get out of the book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So so why the Renaissance? You know, of all the of all the magical eras, mm. I mean, especially considering as you said, uh, the Tree of Gnosis was the one I forgot. But especially considering he's he's uh, mm -hmm. you know there's all these different eras that he would have been well aware of, of course, and uh, well studied mm -hmm. in. Why is the Renaissance of such importance? Well, I think it's because. Uh, um, well, this period of time was, in fact, the last moment in the history of the West when magic was understood by most people uh, as magic in the original sense of the word, uh, that is as a discipline of the imagination. After that, magic and hermeticism, they went under, underground, uh, but they still influenced a large portion of the disciplines that came after it. Uh, so it became an undercurrent, but that was the moment not only when it attained its highest point of development, but, it, but when it was magic. As, as such. So I think that's why. Uh, on the other hand, I think we, we have to consider that, uh, well, what the Renaissance is. I mean, typically, they've always told us that, that it was a Renaissance of interest in the ideals of classical antiquity. But uh, for example, Francis Yates says that it was really a resurgence of interest in the Hermetic tradition, uh, which is why, uh, for example, the Corpus Hermeticum, which was translated by um, Marsilio Ficino in, into Latin, uh, was more important to Renaissance Neoplatonists than Plato himself. So uh, with this historical period, I think, saw so, was unprecedented interest in, in the magical practices of the classical and, and the late antiquity, uh, which included hermeticism, astrology, erotic magic, alchemy, the art of memory, and this began in earnest uh, with Marsilio Ficino and continued in the work of Pico della Mirandola and Giordano Bruno, uh, who refined and elaborated uh, a set of magical practices that represent the highest point in develop the development of, of this magical tradition, as I mentioned. So there were a lot of changes going uh, through that time, I think. And this is why, why um, you know, the Renaissance is so important uh, for magic. Mm -hmm. And I guess, I guess for those, uh, those who are one, what, what, times what times are we sort of looking at in history here what years is this, okay is what this years hmm. uh, okay so Marcelo Ficino we are talking the first and second you know was I don't remember when he was born actually but uh, he covers almost uh 
the second half of the 15th century. Mm-hmm. And then we have Giordano Bruno, which is 16th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, that's that's when you see the development of it. Mm-hmm. And from that time, from the time of Ficino to the time of of uh, Bruno, there are, <clears throat> you know, uh, magic underwent this enormous transformation. For example, in Ficino, magic is interpersonal and his work focuses on the erotic potential between two individuals, as it happens when we fall in love, for example. But in Bruno, uh, this erotic process extends to the whole of social life and, um, in fact, to the rest of the natural world, uh, which signals a change in how an active magician has to be to, to attain his goals. So Kuliani used to say that, that the change was like uh, what happened in the concept of, of transference from Freud to Lacan. And Freud, you know, transference is between two individuals, right? But in Lacan, it stands to everywhere. So it's it's that kind of thing, the way he, he put it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that, that's why we we say that Bruno is interested not in the natural currents of love, but in the active production of arrows and in the ways it can be directed with different results. So his attitude in this respect, I think, was almost modern. He was actually stepping away from the via contemplativa of the Middle Ages, and he was beginning to tread in the via activa of, of modern science. That is a very interesting trait of his, of his, um, of his work, I think. Mm-hmm. So staying on this, just staying on this history thread, at the end of Giordano Bruno, are we seeing the first sort of seeds of the Enlightenment come in to, you know, uh, or is yes, it a bit too can, early? Well, it is It is a bit early, but I think, well, I think he was more of an, an anomaly in a sense. I think he was ahead of his time. Uh, and I think it's because uh, the kind of individual he was. But we could identify many of his ideas with what would later came, uh, come to be the... Uh, the Enlightenment, <clears throat> although, although you know, in, in a sense, Bruno was really uh, a person from the past. The kind of knowledge he represented was not what was and what was considered fashionable in the in the 16th century. It was he was a man uh, out of his time. I would say he was pushing for ideas that you know, in the mind of most, had had their time and were almost done. So, so in a sense, he was his attitude was modern, but his way, the knowledge he, he pushed for was was uh, antique. We could say, yeah, yeah. I remember reading um, his. It was translated by John Michael Greer, um, the book on shadows, which had a short, some biographical stuff about mm-hmm. Bruno in it. And Bruno was this extremely strange, a bit of a bit of a smart Alec, um, but yeah. probably justified to to be you know to be fair i mean he was extremely extremely smart but extremely um tongue-in-cheek and i think you know often pushing (laughs) pushing pushing sort of prodding everyone right um but as you say it did come across in that even that short biographical um extract like Mm -hmm. some figures throughout time he's he's a man who's sort of i remember it explained to Ernst Dunger where they said it was a man whose uh whose consciousness was from another time Right, he's just completely totally. out of place. And that's how I felt about Bruno as well. So, Yeah, totally. And not only that, I mean, uh, the the uh, scope of his knowledge was enormous. Uh, he, you know, he was a, a memory artist. So the kind of knowledge he, he could 
hold in his mind was amazing. And that was something so uh, strange for the new type of intelligence that was being pushed for in the in the 16th century. For example, I don't know, Francis, someone like Francis Bacon, that that Bruno would seem like a really strange character that was going for. And he was really arrogant as well, as you mentioned. He was really <laughs> smart aleck. And he was really feisty as well. You know, he he wouldn't choose his fights. He would fight every every time you get well he's he was very intelligent about it but he, he was that kind of individual yes do you think uh his i mean obviously the one fact that the majority of people know about bruno is the fact that he was burned burned at the stake right mm. by the catholic church do you think that mm. wouldn't have happened if he hadn't have been so uh so so pushy or do you, yeah, th- or do you think it was primarily down to the fact that he was constructing these uh so-called heretical works well, it had to do with that, sure, but it also had to do with, uh, you know, his his ideas as they had this strong pagan influence. They they didn't go along with the main uh, line of thought of, of the Catholic Church. So he didn't have it easy in both respects. He was a man that was deeply influenced by magic, which would make him a heretic. But if he didn't, you know, pronounce himself outwardly about that, he wouldn't have had any problem. Right. But he was this kind of outspoken person and what he believed, he really believed in. So he wouldn't back down. And that, that I think, was the problem that he everywhere he went and he had this life where he went to a lot of places. He had to flee, in a sense, because he was always like hounded by by uh, the agents of the Inquisition until they got to him. Right. And he spent like the last, uh, I think, five years of his life in prison. Uh, well, while they, they, you know, they processed him, but it was, I don't think there was any way for him to save. I mean, he, it would have been like a different person altogether to avoid Mm -hmm. being burned. He was too, too, uh, you know, he believed so strongly about the things he talked and he wrote about that he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't recant. He wouldn't back down on any of his ideals. Mm. Yeah, that was the kind of person. He was a very brave person, actually. Oh, yeah. I mean, for sure, to do everything so publicly uh, and, and yeah. unavoidably publish these manuscripts, right? Um, yeah, totally. In, in such a time. Um, and, it, you know, just as an aside, I think it's probably one of uh, my favorite statues ever is the, the now oh. sort of famous statue of Bruno with the sort of foreboding <laughs> hood. Um, uh-huh. I can't remember oh, yeah. where, where about it is. Um, I think it's in Rome, maybe Capo de Fiori. Yeah, I think so. I don't know, but uh, maybe there, yeah. It's, I mean, the fact it's, it, I hope it is, because it's almost like a triumph for Bruno that he's uh, immortalized now in Rome, of all places. Yeah, right in the place where they burned him. <laughs> is, oh, ah, I see. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Uh, well, I'm not sure. I don't know for sure, but, but yeah, I think so. It was pretty near to where the place is. Eh? Mm, okay. He was burned, yeah. So you were, men- you were mentioning earlier with, we have this difference between Ficino and the love between two people and that love being used uh, magically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you, you mentioned that for Bruno, it's uh, a love which is, um, as you'd say, like a with with Lacan, everything is, I think, it's, I think he uses the word intersubjective. Everything is... Yes. is uh, that's, yeah, everything that's, is related, yeah. Re- that same love is related. So... <laughs> It begs the question, you know, it's not love and magic in the Renaissance, it's eros and magic in the Renaissance. So what is the difference yes. between eros, which is, uh, you know, I'm thinking, often thinking of Ludwig, Ludwig Klager's book of cosmogonic eros. Eros mm-hmm. is often seen as this, uh, maybe I'm wrong with this, but the, the, the strange and dark side of love. 
So what is uh, the difference well, between it, Eros and Love? Or, is, or, or, or am I completely off the mark there? No, 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 not at all. Uh, well, I think, uh, you know, your question stems from the fact that uh, our concept of love nowadays is largely restricted to uh, romantic love, uh, which is a relatively recent development. And, um, or it may also include love for one's friends or parents or family. Uh, but for example, in ancient Greece, I think there were like about, uh, I don't know, like eight or nine types of love, uh, of which arrows, uh, which is sexual desire, was only one. So there was also uh, philia, which was a spiritual connection, uh, ludus, which was playful love, mania, which was obsessive love, uh, agape, which is unconditional love, as in charity, for example. Well, there are many others. However, in the context of erotic magic, eros stands for a very general form of desire that is not necessarily sexual, but it is understood as the vinculum vinculorum, which is the bond of bonds. And it is a force that ensures the continuity of all the links of the great chain of being, which was a hierarchical structure that included uh, all the entities in the cosmos, ranging from supernatural intelligences like angels down to rocks. So in this sense, Eros is the power that allows for the operations of magic. It makes action at a distance possible. And this is why Bruno speaks of Eros as a... Um, as a great web of bonds that cannot be designated by just one name and to which he refers as the hand which binds. And this, I think, points to a feature in his system, uh, which is that everything can be bound and manipulated uh, if you use the proper desire. If you find the proper bond for this or that person, or even for a mass, you can manipulate it, you can steer it as, at will. So that's, that's what, uh, what his system was about, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Culiano comments that this this uh, theorization of bonds, which from Bruno's text, which I'm trying to remember the name of, which is a very short text of Bruno's um, mm-hmm. on something of bonds. I can't remember the exact title. Yeah, it's, um, uh, yeah, it's probably uh, the Vinculis in Genere mm-hmm. of bonds in general. Yeah. So on. And Culiano comments that this sort of theorization moved into people such as is it uh, Gustave Le Bon, who wrote The Crowd, which then itself totally. transforms. And actually, I mean, to give a key example of how this has been utilized throughout history, as many people, the, one of the key reasons why Gustave Le Bon's The Crowd is known is because it was for a long time uh, Adolf Hitler's bedside reading uh, as to yeah. how <laughs> to control the crowd. Um, so... Eros, as you know, it's a, a, could we say a, a general understanding of desire in the sense that, as you said, uh, if the desire is understood, then there, then there becomes a form of chains or bonds or control uh, of a person or persons. Um, and so there's there's two other things which I think, with along with Eros, there's two other things which I think uh, sort of define the, the foundational sort of um, tools which Culiano is using to construct this argument of why it's happening. And these two things are uh, mm. the pneuma, so P-N-E-U-M-A, the pneuma, and mm-hmm. also phantasms or fantasy with P-H, P-H-A-N-T-A-S-M. So beginning with the pneuma. So what is the pneuma? So we have Eros. <laughs> All right. So, uh, okay. Uh, the pneuma is, I think, a concept that is the result of a deeply dualistic way of thinking we inherited from Plato. And I think to understand it, we need to understand the way the classical world was composed. So back then, uh, the cosmos was thought to be geocentric and was divided into two main portions or realms. 
There was the sublunar world, uh, which encompassed everything uh, below the sphere of the moon, and the superlunar world, and close to the rest of the heavenly spheres above the moon. So everything in the sublunar realm was made out of the four classical elements, while the planets in the upper spheres were thought to be made out of a quintessence or a fifth element that was named Numa which was translated into Latin as a spiritus, a spirit. So the planets were thought to be this, made out of this ethereal element, right? This is spirit. So within the system, what happened was that humans were thought to be of the dual nature. Uh, our body was made up of the four elements of the sublunar world, but a spirit was made out of Numa. And in this sense, Numa was, uh, you know, this sort of, subtle and ethereal substance we humans shared with heavenly spheres. It was our connection to the divine. So now you see that everything was connected that way. You know, the human spirit and the stars were connected, and that explains why the stars and the planets had had such an influence within human life. Mm -hmm. And now, uh, to answer your question, within the human body, the pneuma, and this is why it is important for magic. The Numa was uh, thought to, uh, to be a vivifying or vital spirit that moved along with the blood and was, according to Marsilio Ficino, almost non-corporeal and already almost soul or almost non-soul and almost corporeal. So it was kind of an intermediary concept to connect the two realms, the corporeal and the incorporeal, uh, that were naturally opposed and they could not communicate. So I think Numa as a concept became a way to reconcile the material and immaterial within the human, within that, you know, uh, dualistic um, scheme we inherited from Plato. Mm -hmm. Right. And now to answer about phantasms, uh, well, I, I have to introduce yet another concept. <laughs> I hope I'm not uh, complicating this too much, but, you know, um, a phantasm is essentially a mental image, but, uh, the other concept I want to introduce is the protonorganon or prime organ. This was a, 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 an ethereal organ within the human body that was made of pneuma and according to the Stoics was located in the heart, uh, although this location depends on the school of thought. But this protonorganon acted as a synthesizer for the stimuli that came from the outside world and was an essential piece of the subtle perceptual apparatus, right? So what happened was that whenever a human perceived something, the pneuma would come out of the eyes, right? And grab into the outside world and bring back an image that, uh, you know, the image of the thing that was being perceived to the inside of the body. Uh, but this image would be material because it came from the material world and it had to be translated into a phantasm that could be understood by the soul. Mm -hmm. So phantasm is in essence a mental image that has been processed in, in, and in a sense, purified in such a way as to result intelligible to the higher faculties of the human, which were thought to be spiritual in nature, right? So in this sense, um, the pneuma was characterized as a mirror in which the phantasms captured by the senses were reflected, which led to the notion of a mind sign which one could visualize his or her thoughts, right? And, uh, well, you know, this is very interesting because it points towards a, a whole perceptual apparatus of the time, which was the pneumatic apparatus, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, this apparatus extended to the whole of human perception, not just visual images, right? So, for example, sound waves were conceived of as vocal pneuma. Uh, 
And this is why, you know, the, the, the scope of the of this uh, perceptions explains why we can relate the concept of pneuma with, the, for example, the ether of uh, 19th century physics, uh, 19th century physics, you know, as a physical concept. It is the same kind of a concept we have there or even electromagnetism or later on information. We can relate all these new concepts to pneuma because it is kind of the same all encompassing substance, right, that is everywhere. And um, yeah, I, I think that's you know the best way to to define this apparatus and to to you know touch upon this key concepts again. So in a, in a certain way, we could say that um, to think about that practically, people who are in uh, let's say horrible industrial surroundings, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, with with sense impressions which are dirty or grimy or, or uh, dark or something like that, that is being imprinted on the soul. And same with people who are surrounded by, let's say, beautiful, natural, serenic scenery, mm. that also is quite literally being imprinted uh, via the senses, yeah. uh, being, as you said, synthesized into your mm-hmm. into your actual being? Uh, well, yes. Um, well, if we, if we keep to this theory, it's only a part of yourself but it's the innermost part it's your soul so so yeah for example um, um, a magician uh in the sense that Ficino was a magician was someone really careful of his surroundings of what he ate of what he drank of his hygiene his personal hygiene the hygiene of the place he where he lived right he wasn't you know and in this sense and this is where there is this kind of uh um, you know, this popular image of the occult as something dark, you know, there is this darkness to it. But this natural magicians of the Renaissance were actually people that were really, really uh, conscious about their surroundings and what they could eat and, and the lives they led. They had to be, they were aiming for excellence, right? So what you say in a, in a sense is right. Uh, a magician in that sense would try to surround himself with the most beautiful scenery or try to lead a, a quiet life of meditation. So yeah, and it's in a sense, it does affect your, your being, I think. Mm-hmm. And so the, the sort of the, this foundation that we've built up here, this really mm-hmm. culminates in whether the, the question, the big question, of course, the answer for Guliano is absolutely yes, which is, mm-hmm. can this functionality of the, the, uh, the phantasm basically be abused by a third party in relation to eros in relation to desire yeah totally totally it can be abused i mean uh once someone learns to how to manipulate other people's phantasms uh which means learning to manipulate images gestures behaviors that penetrate into the pneumatic apparatus of uh of the victim or the prey he or she gains the ability to influence or manipulate another individual or even a mass according to the bonds that he that he places in the pneuma of the other person or in the pneuma for example Gustav Le Bon which you mentioned earlier he talked about the soul of the crowd right mm. and the soul of the crowd is nothing but a general pneuma right when we have a you know like a a, a mass of people right they kind of synchronize and when, the, you know, you have someone like Hitler, for example, uh, delivering this a speech, what happens? He, he actually implants this very, uh, this very precise ideas in the soul of the crowd. That's the way uh, Le Bon would put it. Uh, what he's doing is actually implanted these images in the pneuma, in the general pneuma. 
right? Where they take root and when they take root, uh, because we repeat them so much, you know, people are exposed to this influence uh, all day. Well, what happens is that really, they really go deep and they transform people and they alter behavior, right? They can change the course of a, of a country's history, for example. So yeah, it, it can be abused and it has been abused for, for a long time, yeah. And, and this is something that uh, your own book, uh, which we spoke about before the first time you came on, and also this, uh, the series that you're developing really is, uh, mm-hmm. am I right in thinking, revolving around basically advertising in relation to this as, as an abuse of this uh, yeah, functionality. Totally, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, is it as simple as an, as, as an advert is basically simply, uh, you know, sort of overthrowing anything which was originally surrounding you and forcing certain impressions onto you which then get synthesized and then alter your your desires oh yeah it it, in a sense it is as simple as that but in another sense you know it takes a lot of effort a lot of research a lot of you know you have to do a lot of things it's a whole process to get to that point and to make it really effective Mm. right so we are at a point in history in which we have made almost a science in an accurate science on how to manipulate people via social media, for example, you'd be amazed at how accurate that can be as to what kind of, I mean, what kind of person would look at this and not this uh, advertising in small variations, right? So down to that point, I think we have perfected kind of a science of manipulation to an extent that would be unimaginable to someone like Bruno. He would be like amazed, okay, we can do that. And it's really, really, I think, moral and dangerous. Yeah. So do you, do you think, uh, say, Facino and Bruno would see see modern advertising as immoral? Like gen- I generally, think so. As a, as a sort of hypn- hypn- they would see it as a hypnotic manipulation and not as a, a selling tactic. Yeah. yeah. Well, yes. And and not only moral, I think they would be scandalized, I hope, you know, the kind of my heroes that they would be uh, scandalized in the sense that, you know, the, the idea they had was that the people that, well, not Fuccino, Bruno, you know, the manipulator uh, was a person that had excelled in conquering himself, right? And because of that, he had the right to tend to the, uh, to the herd of souls. That's how, uh, how Bruno put it. Right, he was a hero. His his soul was heroic, and that gave him right to to do these things. So manipulation was not for manipulation's sake. Mm. It was not to sell something or to push a political agenda or anything like that. It was for the greater good. That's how they that's how they saw it. Right. So right now, you know, it's pretty bad. Yeah, not to sort of force uh, Christian language onto it, but it seems almost like the word manipulator isn't exactly helpful because contemporary within contemporary totally. language, a manipulator is uh, absolutely negative. So it almost seems like mm-hmm. a, someone someone almost becoming a saint, and then that allows them the right to become a shepherd. Um, yeah. And this is something that Bruno actually focuses on in one of the questions here that you know mm-hmm. um, the the manipulator is the only person who, as you said, has the right mm-hmm. because they've. Going back to what you were saying about Ficino and about this sort of, um, you know, mm-hmm. the delicate nature of what's going into them, their hygiene, their food, their surroundings, um, what mm-hmm. they're reading. Um, that's someone who's attempted to, or possibly has achieved excellence and thus allows mm-hmm. them to then have the right to say, look, I, I do know what's best for you to synthesize. Not someone <laughs> who's, uh, let's say, like an advertiser who's almost found the 
let's say the the step-by-step book of how to mm-hmm. manipulate a mind and then there's using it for nefarious aims yeah yeah totally yeah that's i mean you know bruno's idea of manipulator is in a very hierarchical and condescending way uh you know, the role of a manipulator was to benevolently steer the herd in the right direction. But that, quite frankly, has never happened, right? You know, every leader we've had since well, the dawn of time has been, like, nefarious. Well, they. So, I guess the problem is, is they believe that they are, like, oh, yeah. you know, to go back to Hitler, he completely believed he was doing the right thing. Sure, sure. But still, I mean... You know, people have to have latitude. People have to have the choice. You, you know, have to have the right to choose things for themselves, not just anyone uh, on top saying, "Okay, this is what you should do. This is what you should buy. This is what you should think." Which is always, I mean, it always ends badly. I mean, we we know this after the twentieth century. We know this better than anyone, better than any other time in history. But still, we have this. You know, it's it's. I think it's one of the banes of a hierarchical society, probably that people are always looking up uh, to a leader to solve their problems, to say, okay, uh, what do we do? What do we do now, <laughs> right? Like you looking down, you looking up to your father saying, okay, what should I do now? But, you know, it doesn't work anymore. That's, that's pretty worrying. We're not doing anything about it. Do you think anyone can ever be entirely free of any chain? No, not totally, but at least... You know, uh, not to be idealistic, but I think we should have at least uh, the power to choose for ourselves most of the time. I mean, we live in a society where we're social animals, so we'll have to to mediate between opinions and get to a consensus. But I do think so. There are ties implicitly, right? But I do think we have we could do better at doing that at at, at choosing uh, common destiny, right? I mean, we actually have the tools, if you think about it. We have this incredible tool, this networks nowadays that are being used in, a, in an appalling way. But we could use that to actually build consensus in new ways. And this is not what's going on. I mean, we use it for social media, which is <laughs> mm. insane, right? Mm-hmm. Hmm. So magically speaking, how does one break the bonds? Hmm. Magically speaking, that is a good question. Because of course we could say, you know, we could we could look at it in the contemporary way and mm. say, well, to break the bonds of advertising, you read certain books and you understand that these companies are being manipulative. Uh, and you might find, you know, companies like I can't remember what it's called, ad something, I can't remember what it was, but certain things which have allowed people to understand that, that, that what's going on in contemporary consumer culture isn't great for them and they find psychological ways to move away from these things but magically speaking what is happening there when someone finally goes i never desired this in the first place this is you telling me what to desire you know what's happening mm-hmm. in that breaking of the bonds well i think well i'm, I'm going to put it on you know we're going to uh, treat the contemporary situation in a magical way so the first thing to think is that we are being manipulated in isolation, right? You are being manipulated by media uh, in your house, me, I'm here, and we are all being manipulated. So the first thing to do, and this is something I've been doing for some time now, is for example, breaking the bond, is not getting your news, 
via social media, right? Get your news from a friend, right? You hear something on the radio, you hear something on TV or whatever, you know, get an actual being to filter things for you, right? And then talk about it with some more friends, you know, to get more points of view. That is a way to break the bond, mm -hmm. right? So you have to, first you need to identify what it is, right? And then you can get, and then you can, you can act upon that, I think. So, you know, for a situation, I think that's what would work the best. That's what I figured so far. And, um, you know, I have no manual and I'm not like really systematic about it. I'm pretty intuitive, I think. Uh, but um, yeah, I don't want to go into specifics. For example, uh, I keep no social media apart from academia.eu. Uh, so I would recommend to anyone, if you can abandon ship and get out of that mess, uh, you know, I would highly recommend it. It can only improve your level of sanity and your mm. actual grasp on reality. So, yeah, but but you have to identify where you are being manipulated first and then act upon that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So one, one thing... Um... And it was the first time I'd read the book. This was a, a part of the thesis that I'd sort of overlooked, but it was one part that you you highlighted in in our emails, which is actually. So, this thesis is is what we've spoken about is one huge part of the book, but there's also this other part mm. concerning Luther and the Reformation, uh, which yeah. you consider to be super super important. So mm -hmm. I will allow you to to um, explain that that part of Kuliano's thesis. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, well, this is like the uh, central thesis of the book. The first part of the book presents like an overall treatment of, of magic, the history of magic. But the second and the third parts uh, deal with uh, um, how Renaissance magic was undermined and ultimately vanquished by the regressive and reactionary forces deployed by the Reformation, which included uh, the total rejection of the pagan culture of, of uh, the Renaissance. And to attain this goal, uh, a censorship of the imaginary was needed since phantasms, you know, uh, mental images were seen as none other than idols conceived by the imagination. And this faculty imagination was supposedly the site where man came into contact with the devil and its machinations, its temptations. So, um, what happens with Culliano is that in sharp contrast to the image of the Reformation as a progressive movement that affected a cleanse on Catholic dogma, Protestantism is seen as Culliano as a, as a deeply reactionary movement that managed to evict magic from Western consciousness because of its intention to purify human imagination, hence the Puritanism, right? And I think it's also important to note that the Catholic response to the Reformation, uh, referred to as Contra Reforma or Counter Reformation, adopted a similar stance towards the pagan imagination of the Renaissance. That is, it decided to suppress uh, the magic imaginary with a strict regime of the spirituality aimed at repressing erotic imagination, right? And this attitude on the on the uh, part of the Catholic Church amounts to a co-optation of Protestant discourse in order to invalidate it, with the result that the attack on magic came from both the Protestant and the Catholic fronts, which diminished the possibility of the survival of magic and set the stage for the emergence of another mode of cognition, which was modern science, right? Mm. 
and which, as we know, took over. So according to Culliano, there was a profound change in human imagination that took us from an intensive qualitative world of magic to an extensive quantitative world of science. Right. Mm. This is the main thesis like, in, a, in a nutshell. Yeah. Mm. So do you think do you think for the the Catholics that was actually for that that decision was really at for their detriment in terms of the counter counter reformation? Yes, yes, I think they were very shrewd about it. I mean, they they understood that what held together the magical world, you know, this this magical view of things was that it was a science of the imaginary as Kuliano puts it. So the decision to go against it and to really take steps to, to for example, uh, you see that in, in uh, there is a book called The Spiritual Exercises by Ignacio de Loyola, who was the founder of the, uh, of the, of the uh, Jesuit movement, the Jesuit order. And at that time, the Jesuit order was um, put uh, in charge of Inquisition, right? But this spiritual exercises is actually using the techniques of the art of memory, which is a magical art, right? in the service of Catholic imagination. Mm. So what you get is, you know, they're not only co-opting, Catholic Church is not only co-opting uh, the idea of, of uh, censoring the imaginary, that was Protestant, right? But it's also using techniques, magical techniques against magic, which was very interesting and very shrewd, if you ask me. Mm. As, and that history has sort of been a bit covered up now? Uh, well, yes, you know, the only place I've heard about that is actually, well, yeah, no, you don't read, I mean, you don't read about it, you don't read the influences, I mean, where did Ignacio de Loyola get the, the idea for these exercises, you don't, I mean, don't find this any, anywhere else, not that I've read, at least. Mm -hmm. And it's strange because Culiana really seems to see that post-Reformation, despite a couple of, a few aesthetic differences, Catholicism mm -hmm. and Protestantism, Protestantism really are standing on the same foundation. Mm, well, I think, you know, I think he didn't have time to develop it. You know, this is like uh, right at the end of the book. But I think that for Culliano, uh, the differences between Catholicism and Protestantism are rather, uh, let's say, empty in the mm. sense that they don't affect Christian dogma in an essential way. I mean, they are variations of the same doctrine and are limited to questions uh, such as, uh, you know, the dispensing of communion or the marriage of the clergy uh, that are not vital to dogma anyway. But perhaps the biggest difference between the Church of Rome and the churches that, that emerged from the Reformation is that, uh, you know, these churches uh, were opposed to images and to idolatry, which was actually what drove the final nail on the coffin of, of Renaissance magic, right? Because it was a result of a culture that gave tremendous importance to the imaginary and the phantasmic. So, of course, there are notable differences between the Catholic and the Reformation camps and the cultures that came from them. But for Culliano, uh, the emphasis is how for a short moment uh, in time, the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation were in agreement in regards to how to deal with the heretic imaginary of magic. That's what I, what I think his, uh, you know, his point was. Mm. I don't think I'm going to find that in any history of Christianity book, though. Oh no, <laughs> no, they've never been agreement officially, at least. Mm. Okay, okay. Um, 
Yeah, is, is there anything you think I've missed in my questions about this, that, about the book, um, just before we touch um, on your own, your own thing that you'd like to add in? Uh, no, not really. I think we've covered up uh, everything. Well, maybe it would be interesting to to speak why Christianity as a whole was um, was so afraid of fantasy, mm-hmm. you know, fantasy mm-hmm. with, a, with pH. And it's, I think, because the imaginative faculty of the human always tended quite naturally towards the erotic and sensual, uh, which was why, you know, what, what the church feared the most. You know, humans connected to their bodies and thus to themselves and their lives that would belong to them and not to God, which was, uh, you know, the current thinking back then. So in this sense, uh, the Catholic provision of sex outside of marriage and procreation was a way to control the will of the people. It was kind of a psychological castration, to use uh, Wilhelm Reich's term, you know, and it was used to reinforce blind obedience to dogma. And also, if you think about it, if, if sex was seen as a natural activity, there was no reason for sin and those and there was no means to exert control uh, on the Christian masses. So in a very real sense, I think it all boils down to social political manipulation, right, both for the Catholics and the Protestants. So in this sense, um, the church's obsession to the fantastic imaginary of the Renaissance was essential because it also signaled a resurgence in the repressive techniques that the church used against heretics, and it actually managed to drive magic underground until it paradoxically resurrected in the 20th century once again with capitalism and advertising. And that, you know, that flip is really paradoxical to my thinking, is how after being after being driven underground, magic then comes up again in advertising within capitalism, that if we follow Max Weber was uh, the result of the Protestant mind, right? Mm-hmm. So there are there are a lot of paradoxes there. You ask me, mm, that is strange. It came from the. It is <laughs> it's somehow been birthed from the dry, uh, you know, tradition traditionless. Dare I say, traditionless and more of this world, Protestantism mm-hmm. as opposed to Catholicism, right? Yeah, mm. totally. But they would never see it as magic. They would see it as uh, mm-hmm. they would see it as part of that the modern science of psycholo- psychology and uh, modern science. Absolutely, and, yeah, totally, yeah. But they but but the effects are still the same. So really, it uh, they think they're just finding a way to tap into a form of psychology, like a a cheat. But really, they're affecting totally. affecting the souls of people. Mm-hmm. Totally, and and you know that that is really interesting to see how how. Um, you know, the phantasms of magic become the images of psychology. That's, well, that's part of, it's not really, Kuliana is not that emphatic about that, but it's really interesting to see how this transforms from one to the other, right? How do we get from magic to psychology? And then having psychology, we can apply that to mass marketing and advertising and public relations and all that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So, of course, we'll we'll speak about this a lot more in in the part which is entirely on it. But how does this book relate to Eros and Change, your own uh, series that you're working on? Or well, you've, um, I believe you've you've finished the series now, haven't you? Yeah, it's uh, it's finished. We are working on the uh, on the English um, voiceover. I think we should have it ready uh, 
I don't know, probably next month. Uh, so we can show it to you and, and uh, you tell us what you think and we can talk about it. And, uh, but it's almost, it's almost done. It's, we are almost done with it. Um, now, uh, regarding your question about the book, the relation of the book is that neither my book nor the documentary series would have been possible without errors and magic in the Renaissance. It is the cornerstone uh, in which everything is based. Mm -hmm. So in this sense, uh, the documentary for Gabriel and me, which is my my partner in Spain, uh, it's a kind of a homage to Culliano. It's dedicated to him. And we wanted to, to really... Uh, make emphasis, do emphasis in this because it's important to, I think, uh, uh, kind of a recover Cuyano for the masses to mm -hmm. say, okay, this intellectual was important. He left this really important ideas, and this need, you know, they they have to be seriously considered by the academia and, and you know by the people at large. So yeah, that was part of the idea behind it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Well. I look forward to speaking and uh, watching it. Uh, I've obviously you've, I've seen little little sneak previews and it's very exciting. Yeah. It's very exciting. So I'm looking forward to watching the whole thing and then chatting to you about it. Um, but yeah, is there anything um, anything else you'd like you'd like to add in before we finish up? Uh, no, no. I think we've uh, covered uh, everything. Yeah. Okay, Maurizio Loza. Mm -hmm. Thanks very much. Well, thank you, James. <laughs>